Let's pray before we get started. Gracious God, we are confident that you are present here. You who were before time, you who will be when time is far gone. We praise you and we glorify you and we ask that this morning, as we have set aside, dedicated this time in this moment as a community, that you might meet us here and teach us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In the controversially animated 2004 movie, uh, The Polar Express, uh, we follow a young boy who is on the cusp of deciding if he believes in Santa Claus or not. He thinks he's too old to believe without real proof, and so he wants to know the truth. He has an extensive notebook with cut-out newspaper clippings, making arguments for and against old Christmas letters with check marks for the gifts that he got and crosses for the ones that he didn't. He's trying to keep track of the evidence in each category. Then, in the middle of the night, a train pulls up in his front yard, and his adventure to find out the truth begins. Toward the end of the movie, as he stands in the center of the North Pole, having been transported there by this magical train, he watches the big man himself step out of the building, and he realizes in that moment that his lack of belief in the whole thing means that he cannot hear the ringing bells on the sleigh. A small bell falls off of the reindeer's harness, and it rolls on the ground towards him, but every time it hits the ground, all you hear is a dull noise. He reaches down to pick it up, the camera switching angles so you can see him as he lifts it to his ear, and he shakes it. Not only is there no noise, you hear the whisper of an earlier moment, doubter, doubter, doubter. He stops and he says, okay, okay. He squeezes his eyes shut and he says, I believe. I believe. And then almost under his breath, I believe. And he raises the bell to his ear a second time and he rings it. And you hear the crisp sound of the bell. This movie was made for children. And so it has a simplistic approach to the question of faith and doubt. It is easy, culturally and in our religious spaces, to see these ideas, doubt and faith, as opposite statuses. Uh, oil and water, enemies themselves, not able to be mixed. Doubt poisons faith, people will say. Or faith ignores doubts altogether. If you really believed, you wouldn't have doubts. But the opposite of a believer is not a doubter. The opposite of one who believes is one who does not believe. In order to understand this, we're going to consider today a story from John chapter 20 and think about whether our cultural ideas about doubt and faith are true. We're going to read of the doubt and faith of the disciples and Jesus' compassionate response to them. And we're going to see if it has anything to teach us about our own faith and doubt. We're going to read from John 20, 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked, 
for fear of the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who is called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. We see Jesus appearing first once to his disciples behind closed, locked doors. And this is after they had already received the news of the resurrection from the women who had gone to the tomb. But they're still here in this room, hiding, in hesitation, in fear, in grief, in confusion. They didn't believe the women. Surprise. And they were shocked when Jesus came into the room, when he appeared among them. But absent from their group is Thomas, the twin. We don't know why he's missing. Maybe he's on a grocery run. Maybe he thought somebody needed to check on his mother. We don't know why he's gone, but he's absent. And because of this, when he returns to them and they tell him that they saw Jesus' physical risen form, he rejects it. You can hear the pain and the frustration in his words. The text says, unless I see the marks and put my finger in his side, I will not believe. This response with such a physical intrusion into Jesus's body expresses how serious Thomas is in this moment. Not just to see or to hear or to know, but to be convicted without hesitation that Jesus had returned. There is a risk for Thomas to hope. And he refuses to participate without something to stand on. After all, <laughs> this other disciples, the ten who were in the room, had already seen Jesus in the flesh. And they were still hiding in that locked room the second time Jesus comes to see them. 
Clearly, they had been convinced, but not convicted. Thomas, like most of us, wants trifold proof, physical proof, in addition to the sights and sounds of his formerly dead Savior. The requests that he makes before he would believe are understandable. We should not shame Thomas here because Jesus does not shame Thomas. He tells him instead, ask what questions you need. Seek the proof you desire. I'm ready to answer. Jesus says you might not get the answer you want in the timing you seek, but I am not afraid or threatened by you asking them. Jesus invites Thomas, touch the holes in my hand, the wound in my side. Satisfy your questions, invasive though they may be. Jesus knew that Thomas, like the rest of the disciples, was having to shift his whole world by the presence of this risen Savior. He knew that this resurrection is not a small question, not a minor doubt. To accept this new reality, Thomas had to disbelieve everything that he knew before about the permanence of death and the punishment of the cross. So he knows this is no small question, and Jesus acts as if this question, this doubt, has value and purpose. He honors it, and he does not see it as a threat. The translation in the Greek here is a little bit tricky with the phrase, do not doubt, but believe. It could mean, do not be without belief, maybe. Do not continue to be without belief. Or do not become without belief. The last one makes the most sense to me, because we know that Thomas has had enough faith in his life to follow Jesus this whole time. In fact, in John 10 and 11, just a few chapters before, Jesus had been determined to go and see Lazarus, who is dying. But this was right on the heels of the religious leaders trying to stone Jesus twice in one chapter. But Thomas sees Jesus' determination and says to the other disciples, let us go with him in order that we might die with him. These are not the words of someone with little faith but a man who was deeply committed to the mission of Jesus, who believed in the work of God in Jesus Christ. So we see Thomas as one who had great faith. And because of the loss of his own expectations, when Jesus was killed, so grows his doubt. Through this perspective, we also see Jesus encouraging us do not allow questions to drive you away from faith, but let them draw you in, closer, deeper. Because belief asks questions. It does not consume without criticism that which it hears. Instead, it asks in order to fully know, to know more, to continually believe better. It does not preserve faith by putting it in some sort of a mold and pouring concrete over it to preserve it for future generations. It gives faith the space it needs to grow. Many of us live in a space of doubt and questions. 
This space is not one that is morally wrong. We don't get to stay in the euphoria of our absolute certainty. We live in a world that is affected by the reality of death, the reality of doubt. I believe Jesus is resurrected. But how am I sure? What does it mean? Do I dare believe? What if God's presence means something I'm not ready to accept? This is the place that we live in, not the confident moment of resurrection. The problem comes when well-meaning people act as if these doubts themselves are unwelcome, threatening, hazardous to our belief. John's gospel tells us instead that these doubts are necessary elements to faith. Because of them, we can become tested believers who are willing to take all of what we believe right down to the bones that we may follow Jesus no matter our own assumptions about what that looks like. Even the end of John's gospel repeats this message in 31, but these signs are written, it says, so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Not that you might immediately and unquestioningly believe, but that you might begin to believe. Faith in every form is a continual reevaluation of that which is true about God and therefore true in our own world. And true faith means a commitment to not saying yes to a cheap faith, not saying yes to a weak one that just says yes to all things it hears. Questions do not shake our faith, but they should shape them. If God is who God says God is, if God is who the heavens testify that God is, who the scriptures tell us that God is, who the Holy Spirit reveals that God is, then God receives our hesitations, our concerns, our doubt, our fear, our questions with a knowing smile. God is not threatened, but gives us the minds to ask in the first place and sees in us the problems that might drive us to demand answers. God who created our minds does not critique us for using them. God doesn't ask for unwavering confidence. That is not faith. But faith, held sometimes with shaking, uncertain hands, but continuing to push forward to believe. Likely there are places in your life where doubts and questions make their appearance. Maybe you wonder about uh, the text of the Bible, how it was formed, whether we can trust it. Maybe it's big questions like, what is God's relationship to suffering in the world, and what does that mean for who God is? Maybe your questions are different, and you're asking about something that you used to think was God, but you've discovered now is just a teaching that might not be fully who God is. You might even worry, is this the kind of God I want to follow? Is this divine God worth my life? Can I trust God? And it is especially scary because when we ask, we often discover that God is not in fact smaller than we thought, but rather vaster than we could possibly wrap our hands around. It is so much easier to be comfortable with a God who only saves those we expect God to save 
who only loves those who love him, who only offers mercy to people we think deserve it. But the God we find in the scriptures and in reality is not a God who does what we expect, but invites more people in, offers more mercy, loves more, forgives more. Thomas's story tells us what we need to do. He asks hard questions, sometimes even demanding answers. And out of that grows a faith that acts, that lives. The text asks the same of us. What will you do? Certainly pretending that you don't have doubts is unhelpful. These things make not for a weak faith, but a deeply committed one. How are we going to respond when a question comes up in your life? We should first ask, then be ready to experience that response, even if it comes later than we want it to, and allow the truth of who God is to strike everything else from our minds and allow it to make us more abundant believers. In the end, it is not Thomas's doubting or his demands that matter. It is his believing. Everybody doubts, but not everyone believes. Be like believing, Thomas. Push as hard as you need to until you are awestruck and moved to say with him, my Lord and my God. You've been listening to me, Pastor Kana Moore, at Hayes Christian Church. Hayes Christian Church is a non-denominational fellowship in Hayes, Kansas. We are supported by the generosity of our members, attenders, and friends. The financial support we raise goes to projects which further spread the gospel to those who do not yet know Jesus, to those local, national, and international missions, and they help keep these podcasts free. If you would like to share a monetary gift with us, please visit our website at hayeschristianchurch.org and click on the donate button. Or you may mail your gift to P.O. Box 1111, Hayes, Kansas, 67601. If you have any questions, comments, or would like more information, we would love to hear from you. Simply go to our website and click on the Contact Us form. Thank you for your generosity, and may God bless you as you seek to follow him.